Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. The Roman Empire's persecution of Christians occurred in waves with the rise and fall of various emperors. One emperor's hatred might spur an intense persecution against Christians, while the next might be more sympathetic, causing the persecution to wane. From 236 to 250 AD, St. Fabian served as the 20th Pope of the Catholic Church. During that time, there was a lull in the persecution. That is, until Emperor Decius ascended the throne. In 250, Decius levied one of the most brutal Christian persecutions in the history of the Roman Empire, known as the Decian Persecution. Empire Decius declared that everyone except Jews had to make a sacrifice and burn incense to the gods and to the well-being of the emperor. The person making the sacrifice would receive a signed certificate showing that they performed the required offering. Anyone without that certificate was subject to execution. During the persecution, many Christians caved into the pressure, opting to save their lives. These people became known as the lapsi, which is where we get the word lapsed. On the other hand, many Christians, including Pope Fabian, refused to make the idolatrous sacrifice and were executed. Because the persecution was so fierce, it was impossible for the church to gather and select a new pope. One of the pressing issues facing the church was what to do with the lapsi, the Christians that renounced their faith in the face of persecution. Should the church permanently excommunicate them? Should they just forgive them and let them back in? Did they need to be rebaptized? Different bishops around the world were handling the lapsi differently. In Rome, there was a priest named Novation, or also known as Novatus. He taught that the lapsi should be condemned. Eusebius, in his volume called Church History, notes that Novation believed, quote, There was no hope of salvation for them now, even if they did everything in their power to prove their conversion sincere and their confession wholehearted, end quote. The Roman clergy recognized that they needed to meet as a council and decide the matter, but they also needed to elect a new pope. In 251, once the Decian persecution relaxed, Cornelius was elected as the 21st pope, succeeding Fabian, who was martyred. A few days after Cornelius' election, Novation, though he swore he would never be a bishop, tricked some bishops into meeting him and crowning him pope. He appointed more bishops and made them swear when receiving Holy Communion that they would not go over to Cornelius' side. Eusebius states that Novation's sect was called the Pure. The challenge was that the church now had two popes, Cornelius, who was appointed through a regular ecclesiastical process, and Novation, who was self-appointed through an act of deception. In an era without video coverage and where news traveled slowly, the churches around the world were confused about which pope they should follow because they were unsure who the rightful pope was. Eventually, after Cornelius' election, a council at Rome convened to decide on Novation and the matter of the lapsi. Here's how Eusebius explained the resolution of the crisis. Quote, Sixty bishops and a still greater number of presbyters and deacons, while in the other provinces of the empire, the local pastors considered separately what was to be done. The result was a unanimous decree that Novation, his companions in presumption, and any who thought fit to approve his attitude of hatred and inhumanity to brother Christians should be regarded as outside the church, but that those brothers who had the misfortune to fall should be treated and cured with the medicine of repentance. End quote. 
In a letter, Pope Cornelius explained to Bishop Fabius of Antioch what had transpired and what the council at Rome had decided. He notes, quote, There can only be one bishop in a Catholic church in which, as Novation knew perfectly well, there are 46 presbyters, 7 deacons, 7 subdeacons, 42 acolytes, 52 exorcists, readers and doorkeepers, and more than 1,500 widows and distressed persons. All these are supported by the Master's grace and love for them, but this vast community so necessary to the church, a number by the providence of God both rich and growing, together with laymen too, numerous to count, did not suffice to turn him from such a hopeless, crazy ambition and recall him to the church. End quote. Eventually, those that were seduced to follow Novation recognized his deception and hubris and abandoned him, but the whole ordeal proved to be a frightening dance with a giant schism for the 200-year-old church. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you listen to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been focusing on the phrase from the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the latest episodes, we've been looking at the unity and the diversity of the Catholic church. In episode 63, we discussed the 24 particular churches that make up the Catholic church. These churches have different governance structures and variations in their liturgies, but yet they are all fully Catholic. So how are they one with the Catholic church? Or said a little differently, what makes the 23 Eastern Catholic churches part of the Catholic church and not part of the Eastern Orthodox church? One thing we all share in common is that we acknowledge the Pope as the Vicar of Christ, St. Peter's successor, and the human leader of the church under the authority of Christ. Each rite appoints bishops or eparchs. Those bishops appoint priests and deacons who swear allegiance to their bishop and his successors, but ultimately the bishops and all under their authority swear allegiance to the Pope and his successors. I came across a meme recently, which I've linked to in the show notes, posted on Instagram by a guy who goes by the handle Honest Youth Pastor. The meme said, quote, You know what? I'm just going to say it. Many of the issues the Protestant church faces come from a lack of hierarchy that the early church had, end quote. Honest Youth Pastor went on to comment on the meme by saying, quote, I'm by no means arguing for return of the Roman Catholic Church. That being said, it's clear that so much of the nonsense we see in the wider Protestant Church today comes from not having the built-in guardrails that the early church had. Everything was measured by the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Keep in mind unity with other believers and the protection of the saints. All the councils and creeds were set apart for that end to solidify doctrine in light of false teaching. To be honest, as I look at the early church, I'm not sure if we will ever regain that type of unity and teaching of the truth until Christ returns for his bride. End quote. I typically don't like to use this platform to call out something someone says. However, honest youth pastor's comment here is very common among Protestants in that they tend to think that the first century church, under the guidance of the original apostles, was the utopia of Christianity. As a former Protestant, I can relate. In fact, as someone who went through a church planting program, I longed to start a church that reflected the church we read about in Acts 2, 42-47. It says, quote, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. End quote. As Christianity rapidly spread, this type of unity and charity was severely deficient in many of the churches. If it were perfect, Paul wouldn't have needed to write any letters. So many of his letters, particularly his letters to the church at Corinth, address startling divisions, heresies, and immoral behavior in those churches. In other words, I think it's naive to imagine the first century church as this beacon of perfect unity and adherence to apostolic teaching. Maybe it started that way at first in Jerusalem, but it got pretty messy as the church grew over time. As I've mentioned a number of times in this podcast, I highly recommend reading Eusebius's work on church history, which was written in the 4th century. I've linked to a free copy in the show notes. For the first 300 years, the early church faced a constant bombardment of three persistent problems, persecution, heresy, and usurping of power. In the opening story about Novation, we see how all three created a perfect storm for the early church. Persecution led to the execution of important leaders like Pope Fabian, which left vacancies, which led opportunists to claim that they were the rightful bishop and use their false position to spread their heresies. Keep in mind that the canon of scripture wasn't fully formed by this time. It's not like people had Bibles on their shelves. To make matters more challenging, there were lots of fake gospels attributed to Jesus' contemporaries like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene floating around. These were a type of fan fiction, so to speak. How was the church to decipher between the true gospels and the fake gospel? How was it to sort out who were the rightful leaders and who were the false ones? Here's what Irenaeus had to say about it 70 years before Novation in his volume called Against Heresies, written around 150 AD. Listen to what he says in Book 3, Chapter 3. Quote, Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, whether by an evil, self-pleasing, by vainglory, or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. We do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient and universally known church, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. The blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus the office of the episcopate. Of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. To him succeeded Anacletus, and after him, in the third place from the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. This man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears, and the traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone in this, for there were many still remaining who had received instructions from the apostles. In the time of this clement, no small dissension having occurred among the brethren at Corinth, the church in Rome dispatched a most powerful letter to the Corinthians, exhorting them to peace renewing their faith, and declaring the tradition that it had lately received from the apostles, proclaiming the one God, omnipotent, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of man, who brought on the deluge, and called Abraham, who led the people from the land of Egypt, spoke with Moses, set forth the law, sent the prophets, and who has prepared fire for the devil and his angels. 
From this document, whoever chooses to do so may learn that he, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was preached by the churches, and may also understand the apostolic tradition of the church, since this epistle is of older date than these men who are now propagating falsehood, and who conjure into existence another God beyond the Creator and the Maker of all existing things. To this Clement, there succeeded Evaristus. Alexander followed Evaristus. Then six from the apostles, Sixtus was appointed. After him, Telephorus, who was gloriously martyred. Then Hyginus, and after him, Pius. Then after him, Anacetus. Soter, having succeeded Anacetus, Eleutherius does now in the twelfth place from the apostles hold the inheritance of the episcopate. In this order, and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is the most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. End quote. It's so important to read the early church fathers because they provide the continuing story of the church. We get a limited view of it in scripture, particularly the book of Acts, but the early church fathers continue to tell the story that provide additional insight into the life of the early church. As a Protestant, my perspective was to look at the early church, read that description of the church's unity and charity in Acts 2, and think like honest youth pastor, gosh, how do we get back to that type of church? In my experience, most Protestant church planners and pastors think that, which I think is genuinely virtuous. I came from a Baptist tradition, and Baptists started by designing a church structure completely antithetical to the Catholic Church. I think they did this for noble, yet naive reasons. They saw the problems and abuses of the Catholic Church and identified the hierarchy as a serious part of the problem. So instead, they designed a polity or governance structure where the leaders in the denomination had no authority over the local church. The members of the church held all the power, the pastor was just one voice, and the delegates of the churches held all the power in the denomination. If the Catholic Church is a monarchy, then the Baptist Church is akin to a democratic republic. Furthermore, instead of a well-defined creed and catechism, they proposed the idea of just having a handful of beliefs that were adhered to by consensus. Because as they saw it, the problem wasn't the local church. The local church, as defined in Acts 2, was the ideal church. The church went off the rails in their perception when the hierarchy led the churches astray. What most Protestants fail to understand is that the Catholic hierarchy and doctrine developed out of necessity. The church faced a constant barrage of heresies and people usurping authority that the church needed to refine processes and beliefs in order to protect the unity of the church. Each crisis has been Satan's attempt at unraveling and destroying the church, and each crisis has led the church to, albeit slowly, reform practices, redefine processes, and restate moral and theological positions. Catholics will be the first to list off the names of bad popes, bishops, and priests, men that use their position of authority for evil and selfish gain. In a room full of Jesus followers, you will always find a Judas Iscariot. But after Judas betrayed Jesus, the apostles and believers didn't throw up their hands and say, well, I guess the whole apostolic leadership thing is bad. No, they replaced Judas with someone that was genuine and trustworthy. When the needs of the widows and the poor weren't being met, the church didn't say, well, I guess this whole apostolic leadership thing is unhelpful. No, they invented the role of deacons and put godly, trustworthy people in charge of waiting tables and serving the poor. As the church grew, it created dioceses and put bishops over those dioceses. As dioceses grew, the bishops divided the dioceses into regions and appointed presbyters or priests to help them serve the local parishes. 
As a Protestant, I would look at the Catholic hierarchy and say, I don't see any of this in the Bible. Why not get back to the basics and have 12 apostolic leaders and seven deacons? What's the point of this well-defined hierarchy? The answer is that the church is no longer 30 or 40 or 50 or even 100,000 people stretched from Palestine to North Africa to Italy. No, the church is 1.3 billion people across the entire globe. The hierarchy of the church has developed and become more defined as the church's needs have evolved. One of the crises that the Catholic Church has dealt with more recently is priests abusing children. What makes the matter worse is that there are reports of bishops who knew the priests were abusing children and chose to just move the priest to another parish rather than launching an investigation. On one hand, we might be tempted to say, see, this is why you can't trust a hierarchy. Another way to think of it is, thank goodness for a hierarchy to hold these priests accountable. Throwing out the baby with the bathwater will likely do no good. This is an opportunity to implement additional processes and safeguards to keep this type of abuse and cover-up from ever happening again. So at the end of the day, I agree with Honest Youth Pastor. So much of Protestants' divisions and problems has to do with a lack of hierarchy. But if we're looking for the solution, I doubt we will find it in the early church. There are certainly some very positive lessons we can learn from the examples of the early church, but the early church was fraught with all sorts of problems. In fact, since the church is in the world and Satan is the prince of this world, we can expect all of those same problems to continue. After all, when has there not been persecution, heresy, and power struggles in the life of the church? This is why we should be thankful for a hierarchy of leaders whose mission is to protect and preserve the unity of Jesus' church until he returns. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it, and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.